Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra tonight with me. We're in chapter 7, and uh, we'll begin the actual presentation by Ezra about his own experience as he arrives now in Jerusalem with a very limited number of people. But we'll see that what's the most amazing thing about this particular venture was the way that Ezra reports it. Um, He's just a man that believes that God is with him. And it shows throughout the entire remainder of uh, this book. Um, As a matter of fact, several times we're going to find him talking about the hand of the Lord is with him. The hand of the Lord is with him. Over and over again, we'll see that similar phrase to that The hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord my God was upon us. And uh, that was definitely so. The journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, by the way the crow flies, if you will, is only about 600 distant uh, miles. But that would be through a very treacherous, uh, arid desert uh, area that would be very, very hard to travel through. And so the vast majority of traveling that took place between Babylon and Jerusalem, even before and after, was over a stretch of territory that was known as the Via Maris, and it went northward into Assyria, and then down through Syria, through the northern part of Israel, into Jerusalem. It was about 900 miles total Distance, but it was the safest and the easiest way for them to traverse that very dangerous uh, landscape. And so that's apparently what they did. It's apparently what before them Zerubbabel and the people with him did. And remember, Zerubbabel and his friend Joshua were the men who were the leaders in that first uh, return to the nation of Israel, and that had taken place in 536 B.C. We look through the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, and those six chapters had to do with the building of the temple. It took 15 years to build the temple, and then there was another four years uh, in in the uh, final construction of it. So a total of about 21 years or so were required to get everything accomplished. Now in Jezra's day, it's about 57 or 58 years later than from the first visit. And we find that when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, things haven't really gone very well. And we're going to see that in the latter portion of the book of Ezra. But here in chapter 7 and 8, we're going to look at the actual journeying both before and after the time that they arrive. It's a very interesting part of the story. So it begins again with verse 1 of chapter 7. That's where we are in the book of Ezra tonight. So if you can turn there, we'll start with our study of this great book. 
where it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 7, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shilam, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Stop there and just take a look at what he's being led to give us for information here. The first thing is, he tells us that it's in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, Artaxerxes is the son of a king named Xerxes. But we know that king by the name of Ahasuerus. And the reason we know that name is because of the book of Esther, which is just two books north of where we are now. But the book of Esther was written uh, about a woman by that name and her relative Mordecai during the time of the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. And it was about 20 or so years or so before King Artaxerxes, now the king during Ezra's time. So Esther and Mordecai were slightly before, in terms of chronology, the time of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But you could call them contemporaries because they were. They all lived about that same period of time. Notice also that here in the book of Ezra, in the seventh chapter, Ezra gives his genealogy. Now, if you look through the various individuals, the prophets or the writers of the Old Testament, like, well, any one of them, I'm trying to think of specific names, but any one of them would have identified themselves by saying, I am such and such, the son of such and such. Or maybe gone to the point of referring to more than one generation, maybe three generations. But Ezra goes all the way back to Aaron. And it's very important that he's doing this. In his day, I might remind you that back in the earlier chapters of Ezra, during the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua, there were a group of people who would travel with Zerubbabel to Jerusalem who identified themselves as Levites, Levites, but they could not prove their lineage. And as a result, they had to wait until there was a determination by the priest by using the Urim and Thummim to determine whether or not they would be accepted as members of the tribe of Levi. During that first return, there were almost 50,000 individuals that had traveled with Zerubbabel and Joshua and had made it safely to Jerusalem. This time, again, some 57, 58 years later, there are going to be less than perhaps 5,000 people. We're not sure exactly of the count because he only gives the number of the men who traveled. But he tells us also, in addition to the men that traveled, there were women and children that traveled with them, and they were also members of the Levite tribe that were not counted, and as well as that, they were members of a group of people known as the Nephinim who were 
servants of the Levites who traveled with him as well. We'll see that as we move forward. But Ezra here is making absolutely sure that everyone knows that he has a lineage through the priesthood all the way back to Aaron. Very, very critically important because he is a scribe, but he's also a priest. Now, he is not qualified to be the high priest because he didn't come through the direct line of the high priests. From Aaron, yes. But just like with David, there was a direct line of lineage that followed from David to Solomon and then to Solomon's son, Reboam, and then onward all the way down through until the Babylonian captivity. They were descendants of David. Now that line of David had completely come to an end. But by the time you get to the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, we find two genealogies there. And in Matthew, I believe it is, we find that Jesus was from the line of David, but not through Solomon, through another individual, Nathan. Still of the line of David, it still gave him the legal right to the throne, but it wasn't through the line that was originally given by God the privilege of reigning in Jerusalem. That line was cut off. And remember, Jeremiah said that there would be no one after the ending of that line that would follow after them. That line would come to an end and there would be none of their descendants who would sit on the throne of David. But another line from David was in God's mind, and that came to pass when Jesus was born. And so he definitely was uh, qualified and given the right by lineage to become the true king when he comes to reign in Jerusalem. But here, this man, Ezra, is a descendant of Aaron, though he doesn't qualify to be a high priest. He still is a priest in the priesthood that descended from uh, the lineage of Aaron. There are a couple of other names that you may be familiar with here in this lineage. One of them is Phineas. Now, he was a third from Aaron, and remember, he was made uh, to be a very, very important figure in the, the way that the Lord moved the people from the wilderness into the land of Canaan. It was while they were encamped in Moab that Balaam had convinced the people of Israel to enter into a relationship with the Moabite women that was a very, very sensuous and worship of their god, Molech, that was completely against what God intended for them. And as a result of that, Phineas stood out because he brought an end to that uh, rebellion by uh, basically killing a man and a woman in their tent. And he was given by God very, very special attention that God considered him to be a very faithful man to him, and he would reward Phineas. As it turned out, he does that through many generations afterwards, another, high, another priest named um, Zadok. And Zadok was during the time of David's kingdom. Now, it's important for us to know that Zadok was a special man of God, and he also was rewarded as well for his faithfulness to David and to God by making sure that his line would continue even until our day. 
there's some way that God is making it so that the line of Zadok will be in place and the descendants of Zadok will be serving the Lord Jesus in the millennial temple according to Ezekiel. If you read chapter 44, verse 15 of Ezekiel, Zadok is mentioned there. So this lineage is a very, very important lineage indeed. And it's a lineage that Ezra can be very, very proud of. And it is necessary for him to be able to identify himself as a man who has descended from Aaron as a Levitical priest because he is going to be establishing a lot of what is necessary for the people of God to move forward after their captivity in Babylon all the way through to the time of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees, uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, the establishment of synagogues, the writing of a lot of the Old Testament scriptures that Ezra had a hand in bringing to us that we have now, not only the book of Ezra, but very likely the books of First and Second Chronicles and other writings as well. He was a scribe and he was very good at what he did. And he was recognized as being a very, very capable individual by the Lord. And God blessed him. And God's hand was indeed upon him. And I want you to take note of the fact that all of us, have that great benefit as well of being able to say, the hand of the Lord is with me. You know, there is no sense in which we can ever think that God would be away from us, turning his back against us, because he said in his word, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I hold you in the palm of my hand. I will not let you go. It tells us that he is our sure foundation. We have a rock, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And his promise is that he will always be with us. Lo, I am with you always, he told his disciples, even unto the ends of the age. That's this present time in which we now are. So Ezra recognized the hand of the Lord is upon him. And I want to continue to emphasize that fact because it's so, so very important for us to realize that that is the case for us as well today. So every time we read that, let us be willing and remember to reflect on the fact that he's speaking those words to you and to me. He says in verse 6, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given the king granted him all his requests. Now, we're not told how Ezra entered into the presence of King Artaxerxes, but apparently he had access to the king. Um, and it's interesting to note that what he says here is so very important. The king granted him all his requests. So Ezra, Ezra came to him with a list of requests that he had put together so that he could make a journey to Jerusalem. And so now he makes this request. He says, The king granted him all this request according to the hand of the Lord, his God, upon him. So he recognized right from the beginning of this account that God's hand was with him. God led him to King Artaxerxes. He led him to tell Artaxerxes what it was that he needed to make this journey, and he trusted in God's provision for every detail of what was going to be given. 
And so it tells us in verse 7, some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So that gives us a date, and we can date that basically around 457 or 458 B.C. As I said, about 57 or 58 years or so prior or after, rather, the time of Zerubbabel. Verse 8 says, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. Now, on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, four months later, he came to Jerusalem. So it tells us it took them four months to travel that somewhere near 900 miles on the trade route that they would have had to have taken to get to Jerusalem from Babylon. Four months have passed in order to get there. It says on the uh, first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. So again, acknowledging that God was with him throughout that journey. And it's interesting to note, we'll see that later, uh, that God certainly was with them. And it was a dangerous journey. But we're going to find that there's no doubt, and it should be no doubt in any of our minds, God was indeed with him throughout that entire process. Verse 10 says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So he had set his heart to do this. The first thing he did was to seek the Lord. Seek the law of the Lord. Read the Lord. Meditate the word of God, on the word of God. Seek the law of the Lord to make sure that he knew the will of God. You know, that's something that every one of us needs to look at very closely. We need to consider this is something that is not just for the leadership. It is something for every one of us. Take a close look at verse 10 where it says again, Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Study the word of God. And again, I've mentioned over and over again recently, and I guess it's necessary that we need to be reminded, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. The only way that you can do that is by getting into the word, by studying it, by looking into what the word of God says and comparing scripture with scripture, just like the Bereans did. And that is what Ezra has been doing. And it tells us not only that, but it says he did the law. He did the word of God. He sought the law of the Lord and he did it. Now, James tells us that we are to do the, the word, not just be hearers only. We are to do the word of God. That's so very, very important for all of us, every one of us. That was important to Ezra. He studied the word of the Lord. He meditated on that word. He dealt, he dwelt, uh, dove into the word of God and he did it. And that means that he was faithful to represent God wherever he did, in whatever he spoke. All those things that we need to remember, what we do and what we say, are so very important. And we need to be willing to make sure that we know the Lord's Word so that we can do the Lord's Word in our everyday activities. But lastly, it tells us that he did those things in order to teach the statutes and ordinances 
in Israel. He wanted to do it in his homeland. He has been in captivity in the kingdom of Persia apparently all of his life. Now, we don't know for certain whether he ever had gotten to Jerusalem before this, but it appears to be the very first time of his having been able to go there. And it's by the grace of of God, because God's hand was upon him, that he could accomplish this task. It was no small thing for him to go before the king and ask for him to grant these things that he's going to request. And we're going to find out that God was in it all the way. And as he had said, the hand of the Lord was with him. For it says in verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the, of the commandments of the Lord and of the statutes to Israel. So, Artaxerxes now writes this letter, and it's a fairly long letter here in our text. It goes from verse uh, 12 all the way down through verse 26. We'll break it up into components a little bit of the way, but I want you to understand that Artaxerxes listened to what Ezra had to ask of him, and his response is to write a letter, a decree that states, this is my response to all of what Ezra has asked. And so he writes this letter in this way, in verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. Now I'd like you to point I'd like to point out to you that this is a voluntary thing. He ought to be being required to go. He's making it so that anyone who wants to go can go. You are free to go if you want to volunteer for this. Now it's not an easy thing to consider. They were living in fairly comfortable homes by this time. In the kingdom of Persia, they had businesses. They were in communities that they had friendships with. They had relatives who were there. They just were living there, and everything was going very, very well for them. And now, Ezra has it on his heart to go to Jerusalem. He wants to take as many as will come with him. And so, Artaxerxes is saying, if you're interested in doing this, if you want to volunteer for this, Go for it. This is your opportunity. And I'm reminded, you know, that's really an invitation that God has made to everybody. God's invitation is to all. If you want to come to my kingdom, you're free to come. It's available. Any one of you can come. Just simply join those who are wanting to go. It's a free invitation. And it's given here also by Artaxerxes. And I think it's a beautiful type of what God is offered to all of us. All who volunteer to go may go. It says in verse 14, Whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, 
Be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Take note of the fact that he is offering a wealth of resources, money that will be available to buy, not building materials, because the temple, remember, has already been built. They want to have money for the journey itself and for the buying of provisions, buying of bulls and rams and lambs for the sacrifices and grain offerings and all of the drink offerings. He's familiar with, apparently, the system of Levitical priesthood. And obviously, it's Ezra who would have told him about these things. So, apparently, Ezra has had contact with Artaxerxes up to this point. Enough time enough opportunities to be able to convey to him these are the details of how we worship our God in Israel. And this is what I want to do when I get back to Jerusalem. I want to reestablish this worship of our God in the way that Moses, our great leader, so many years before had written for us to do exactly as he has prescribed. Now as Ezra is asking Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes has written this letter indicating that he's granting everything that he needs for this task. It tells us in verse 18, And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Artaxerxes is saying, look, I know I'm giving you more than you need for just those things, but whatever it is that you need beyond that, It's your money. Use it as you would have it be done, according to the will of your God. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, still writing in this letter, also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. That's really, really good news for the minister of God. No taxes that the minister of God would have to pay because he can take from the treasury everything that he needs. It's basically an open door to write your own check. A blank check policy. But there is a limit. It tells us in verse 21, And I, even Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasuries who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, and may require of you, let it be done diligently, up to, and that's the limitation, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt, without prescribed limit. So as much salt as you want. But everything else had its limit. By the way, a hundred talents of silver is several hundred tons of silver. Around 300 tons, I've been told. I haven't done the math, but that's what I was led to believe. If you want to look it up, maybe you can determine whether that is so. A talent is about 70 pounds, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a lot of money being made available to them. A lot of grain, a lot of wine and oil and lots of salt. 
He says in verse 23, finally, whatever is commended by, commanded rather, by the God of heaven, let it be diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So Artaxerxes is here demonstrating the fact that he believes that if he does all of these things on behalf of the God of Israel, that he will benefit from it and his family will benefit from it. The realm of his Persian empire will benefit from it. He wants to appease the God of Jerusalem. Now, he's a polytheistic individual. But I also believe that he recognizes that there is power in this God, that there is nothing like that in any of the other gods of any other nations under his realm. So he is really giving the people of God a very, very high place in his depending upon their God to help him in the management of his kingdom. It's also historically known that this again was the seventh year of his reign. In the first few years of his reign, he had some problems with the rising power of Greece and also with Egypt. And he was able to subdue them finally. And so by this time, things are fairly good for him. But he wants it to stay that way. So it's really in his best interest to do what he is doing with regard to the God of Israel. It's perfect timing. Perhaps he sees that as well. And he recognizes the fact that this would be to my advantage to bless this people and help them to serve their God. So the last few verses, verses 24 through 26, end the letter with these words. Also, we inform you, he's still talking to uh, the people who are uh, on the other side of Jordan, who are in charge of the kingdom there. Whatever he says must go, by the way. He says, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethinim, or servants of this house of God. It may very well be that in our country's legal system, as the founding fathers were determining uh, the relationship that the nation would have with the churches, of course, this present day has totally ruined the intent of the founding fathers. But one of the things that the founding fathers did do, they encoded this fact, that churches would not be taxed. And I believe it's very likely that it was from this passage that that was so. Now, frankly, it's not totally true because pastors are employees of the church and pastors are taxed. So it doesn't really apply to me, although it would be nice if that were the case, but it applies to churches as, as, as part of our nation's decision to treat churches in a very special sort of way. And I believe, again, that this is a basis for that treatment. Verse 25 says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Here's a challenge for Ezra. Again, back in verse 10, he studied the word of God, and he did the word of God 
in his living out his life for God, and he wanted to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel, and Artaxerxes telling him, this is the right thing for you to do, Ezra. Go for it. Teach those who do not know the doctrines that they should know, the lessons that they should know, the statutes that they should know, the testaments that they should know, the laws of God. Let it be known to them, and let them live it like you do. Whoever will not observe the law, listen to what his punishment will be. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. He is given Ezra judicial rights to execute laws against anyone who rebels against the law of God. This is huge because that is the first instance where the people of God now have at least a limited amount of authority to rule themselves. But again, they have no ruler in Jerusalem seated on the throne of David who is a descendant of David. That cannot come until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. We're living in those times. They began with King Nebuchadnezzar, when the people of Israel were removed from the land, ultimately beginning in 586 B.C., there was no king in Israel who was a descendant of David legally until the time when Jesus Christ will sit on the throne. And that time, from 586 until the Lord sits in Jerusalem on his throne, we know as the time of the Gentiles. We're in it. And Ezra is participating in a restoration of the nation of Israel that will lead us to that wonderful kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Verse 27 says, Ezra's response, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged, as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So Ezra is praising the Lord, and again he's giving God the glory because he sees that God's hand is with him, has been on him. God is very, very close to him, and he recognizes it. He sees it in every detail of what has taken place in this encounter with Artaxerxes and the results of what Artaxerxes has recorded for us and for Ezra and for the people of God in his day. Now, it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 8, these are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. Now, from verse 2 until verse 14, we've got a list of names, and in every one of that list of names, uh, there is a number of men counted. Not men and women, but men. And the total number of the men that are counted is around 1,500 people. All men who have been chosen to go to Jerusalem with Ezra. I'm not going to read verses 2 through 14. It's a 
futile effort for most of us because the names are so, so very difficult for us. But I'm reminded again, I've mentioned it before and I mention it now, names are important to God. Why else would he have our names written in his book of life? Names are important to God. In Psalm 135, we see the fact that God has recorded and will continue to record the names of those who were born in Jerusalem. So, as we remember that, we're going to skip over verses 2 through 14, and coming to the total of about 1,500, a little bit more than that, of men who have been chosen to go. And verse 15 continues and says, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests, and found none of the sons of Levi there. Uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. What he's saying is, of all those people that have volunteered, not a single volunteer of the Levites from the tribes of Levi that would serve the Lord in the temple. They needed the Levites. There had to be Levites who would do the various things that were required, not that just the priests would be doing, but the Levites, the descendants of Aaron through a different line, they were important in terms of the ministration of all the sacraments, all of the various things that had to be done in the temple, but there were none. That's a big problem. Now, they're gathered by the river that flows to Ahava, that's not too far from Babylon. They've been there now three days, and that's when he realizes We've got to find some Levites. So this is what he does. He says in verse 16, Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jared, El-Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders, also for Zoyarib and El-Nathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man at the place Cassiphia, and I told them, what they should say to Ido and his brethren to the Nethanim at the place Cassiphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. So this place, Cassiphia, is not known as far as present location or the location it was then. Uh, we have no idea where it was, but it was apparently close by to where they were camped, not too far from Babylon. And it tells, tells us here that this man whose name is Ido, is a chief man in that place, and he is being asked to round up as many Levites as he can find to convince them to join Ezra in this journey. It tells us in verse 8, Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah, the son of Merari, Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men. So a total of 38 men, apparently Levites, are now available to go with them. It's not much. It's a very, very small beginning. But again, God is not concerned with the size. He's concerned with the willingness, the heart. And he's going to use this. And he's going to bless it. So it says in verse 20, also of the Nethanim, those are the servants that David 
and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites 220 Nethanim. All of them were designated by name. So the Nethanim are slaves, servants of the Levites, and it's their particular duty to minister to the Levites and help them in the janitorial work, if you will, of the temple ministry. So they've got everything now together. They're ready to start their journey. But before they go, verse 21 tells us this, Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. He's doing the right thing. He's turning to God. He's declaring a fast. A time of fasting and prayer is so very, very important. In so many places in the Word of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find that there is a consecration that is being made in this willingness to fast, give up, whatever it is that you're willing to give up, so that you can go before the Lord in prayer and seek His will. That's exactly what they're doing here. It tells us in verse 22, For I was ashamed, listen to what he's saying here, I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon us, all of those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. Ezra had told Artaxerxes, My God is able to take care of us. We don't need any of your help. We'll be okay. But now he's facing this challenge of taking with him about 5,000 people, and he's very concerned about the fact that they're going in a very hostile environment. Not only in terms of the conditions weather-wise, but there are robbers along the route. There are people who could take advantage of an unarmed group of people. And especially if they found out that they got all this silver and all this stuff that they're taking with them to Jerusalem, they're very, very wide open for any robber to come along and completely eliminate them and take their spoil. Definitely something to be concerned about. But he says, I told Artaxerxes, the hand of God is upon all those who seek him. And they're now seeking him. And they believe, he believes, and so should we, that when we seek, we will find. When we knock, the door will be opened. When we ask, it will be given unto you. Those are the things that we know to be true because we have the Word of God before us. Ezra knew them to be true also because he had studied the Word of God and he did the Word of God and he wanted to teach that Word of God to all of those who were with him. And so this is an example of trusting in God no matter what the circumstances may look like. And a lot of people would say, well, under the circumstances, I think I did pretty good. I ran only after I was really feeling a lot of pressure. What Ezra is saying is don't run. Just trust in the Lord. Stand your ground. Be willing to believe that his hand is with you. So he says in verse 23, so we fasted and entreated our God for this. And he answered our prayer. He answered our prayer. 
The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. Underline that. Memorize that. Trust Him for it. Those are the promises that we have before us. We know that to be true. Ezra knew it, so should you. I do, and I hope that I'll be able to continually tell anyone who is to come that this is the truth of God's Word, that He will not turn back from His promises. So, my friends, this story that we have been looking at is a story of great victory for the people of God. However, as we move forward through the remainder of the book, we're going to find some things that are troubling indeed, that need to be dealt with. Always remember, God expects a lot from those for whom much has been given. They've been given a great opportunity, and He expects much of them. And we'll find out just exactly what that expectation is the next time we get together. Until then, God bless you all. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next time.